Leaving North Korea. I am a North Korean defector currently working as a research intern at the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, located in Washington, D.C. Before I begin talking about my personal story on how I defected, let me start by asking everyone a question. Did you come to this event because you wanted to? Or did you have to come to this event because your organization threatened you with punishment if you didn't go? I'm guessing you are all here at this event because you are curious about the story of a North Korean defector. When we become adults, we have the freedom to make choices. However, there are only a few choices individuals have in North Korea. Anyone can leave the room if my story is boring, right? No one is forced to stay here. In that sense, you are all free. Let me give you another example. There is a great diversity of hairstyles, makeup, and fashion in this room, and you are all very stylish. Even the way you guys are sitting is very relaxed. However, in North Korea, the regime controls everything from fashion to the way that you sit. Blue jeans, hair dye, and short skirts are all prohibited in North Korea. All students must wear uniforms and badges with portraits of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il every day, from the beginning of elementary school to the end of university. Officers are everywhere in cities to monitor every North Korean, making sure that they are all wearing their badges, not wearing blue jeans, and not dyeing their hair. When I was in school, I had to wear a school uniform that had to be immaculately clean. Each class had roughly 35 students, and of those, around five students became leaders in the class, according to their songbung, a social classification ranking. Beginning in elementary school, students are classified according to their songbung. Since my parents' songbung was very good, I was able to become one of the leaders, and I was entitled to become a chairman of the ideology commission. Most of my childhood was spent during what is called the March of the Suffering or the Great Famine in North Korea. Some of us lacked food, and many of my classmates could not come to school. There were a lot of heartbreaking stories. Some of my friends had to climb mountains to dig up grass to eat. Some had accidents while jumping onto the food train from Russia. Some lost their parents and became beggars, and some literally worked themselves to death along with their parents. And if you walked around the streets, you could easily find dead bodies, those who died of hunger. Security officers would then come to move those dead bodies. Thanks to my father, who was a businessman, and my mother, who was an accountant, I did not experience starvation, even though I was born during the Great Famine. 
but the happy years did not last long. My father's whole business was confiscated after an investigation from Pyongyang. When individuals own more than a certain amount of wealth, they have their entire property confiscated or are executed by a firing squad. My father was able to save his life with help from a Boibu, North Korean secret police officer, whom my father had bribed in the past. However, my mother became ill from a heart disease due to the shock of the incident. After that, her heart disease advanced into other health complications, such as diabetes and cataract disease. She died of cancer when I was 18. My life completely changed after my mother's death. I felt no more attachment to my country and did not want to waste my future in a country that had no freedom. I decided to leave North Korea. I was very well aware of the outside world. I used to read Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind under the candlelight and even watched James Bond movies with no Korean subtitles. The Western people with big eyes and noses in the movies and South Koreans in South Korean TV shows were all good looking. They were completely different from what I had learned in school about starving South Koreans. Through movies, TV shows, novels, and other foreign products, I learned that what I was taught in school were all lies. I left my hometown and said goodbye to my father and younger brother for the last time. My brother, 14 at the time, thought I was going to a relative's house. I have not seen my family for 10 years. I followed a broker paid for by my father. I walked across the Tumen River and arrived on Chinese soil where I met another broker with a car. We then drove to a street in the city of Yanji where a friend of my father's lived. While we were driving, the broker suggested that we should change our clothes since they were all wet. I trusted him and went into a house where the broker's wife gave me a change of clothing. With no change of expression, the broker's wife casually told me that I had been sold at a high price to a wealthy Chinese man and that I would be getting married in a week. She told me that I was lucky. At that moment, my mind went blank and I didn't know what to do. I screamed and tried to escape from the house, but the door was locked and all the wires to the phones were cut. They also confiscated my notebook with all my contacts so that I could not escape. Watching me get angry, the broker's wife smiled and told me that this was China, not North Korea. They had tricked me and my father. For two days, I was locked in the house. I cried and I prayed to my mother. I begged and begged for my freedom. After crying for a good while, I saw a big window in the corner of my eye. 
I thought this could be a way to escape. As soon as I landed, I ran to the street, took a cab, and safely arrived at my father's friend's home. I was injured from the jump, and my whole body ached for weeks. I was in China for ten months. With the help of my father's friend, I was able to reach an American missionary, and I decided to go to the U.S. He sent a female broker, and for two days the broker and I shifted between buses and trains to arrive at the South Korean embassy in Vietnam, only to realize that the embassy was surrounded and guarded by armed police officers. The plan to enter the embassy was not going to succeed. After that, we took a bus from Vietnam that was heading to Laos. The bus turned out to be a full of tourists with a local tour guide. By chance, we met a young South Korean man who spoke English. We asked him to translate and asked the tour guide if he could help us pass the border to Laos safely, because I did not have a passport. I hid under the chair on the bus in silence. I heard a siren and the bus suddenly stopped. I heard dogs barking outside. Unfortunately, I was caught by the Vietnamese border guards. Seeing me held by the guards, the broker ran away. I cried and cried because I was scared. I was in despair, thinking that there was no one else to help me now. In the middle of all this, someone called out my name. It was the young South Korean man. He sensed something was wrong and had not crossed into Laos. Instead, he stayed at the border of Vietnam and helped me get away from the guards. We then went to the local tour guide's house. He kindly let me stay at his home for a few days, and we arranged a route to a different border. One day, the local tour guide took me to a fancy restaurant and showed me around the seaside. After dinner, he gave me a necklace as a gift, but I refused. I soon realized why the tour guide was so kind to me. He wanted me to marry and live with him in Vietnam. At the time, I was a 19-year-old girl, and he was in his mid-30s with a child. To me, that proposal was scarier than the time I was caught at the border, but I simply couldn't be hostile to him. He was the only Vietnamese local who could help me. The young South Korean and I persuaded him to help me find a different route to Laos, and there I was caught again while trying to cross the border. At the age of 19, I was arrested by the Vietnamese border guards, and I was detained in jail for three weeks with two other foreigners. After being investigated by security guards, I was told that I would be sent back to North Korea. As soon as I heard the decision, I lost control and cried. It was not because I was going to die.
It was the thought of my family and close relatives I loved dearly, who were going to be either sentenced to a prison camp or shot to death that terrified me the most. I didn't know what to do, and I was scared. But the South Korean man convinced the border guards to deport me to China instead of sending me back to the North Korean embassy. Thankfully, my life was saved for the time being, and my family was safe. Yet, I felt disgusted by the sexual harassment from the Vietnamese border guards while I was being investigated by them. Even when I was crying during the investigation, the guards were touching my thighs. To me, they were not humans. If it weren't for the young South Korean man, I could have experienced much worse. I had taken a long journey all the way to Vietnam, but I had to turn back and take the same route to China. I was deported, sent back to China, and then abandoned. However, as soon as I reached China, the South Korean man called me on a phone he had slipped into my backpack. He had followed me in a taxi right behind the car to where I was abandoned. After reuniting with him, we quickly left for Ho Chi Minh City. We both tried to escape by crossing the Cambodian border this time. However, we were caught. I then tried to run away through the back door of the bathroom, but the guards caught me once again. After multiple attempts to escape, I finally reached Cambodia with the help of the South Korean man. I crossed the Mekong River, where alligators lived, barefoot. The water came up to my neck, but all I could think of while crossing the river was making sure that the photo of my beloved brother did not get wet. As soon as I reached the soil, I walked about six more hours on the street all night. The pain in my bloody feet was getting worse, and I couldn't bear it. So I laid down in the middle of the street in hopes to stop any car. Luckily, a driver stopped his car and gave me a ride to the Cambodian embassy. Under the guidance of the embassy, I went to a house managed by a pastor. When I arrived at the house, there were about 200 defectors already standing by to go to Korea. 80% of them were women. I thought I was safe until the pastor tried to sexually harass me. I threatened to sue the pastor as soon as I got to Korea. He then backed off. I finally made it to South Korea after waiting for five months. The journey from North Korea to South Korea took me a total of one year and a half. Many women, including myself, are beaten up, sexually harassed, and assaulted during their journeys to defect, simply because they are women and because they were born in an authoritarian regime. In North Korea, the idea of women's rights doesn't exist. I hope that one day 
all North Korean women understand that they too are valuable human beings like the rest of us. A new North Korean paradigm. U.S. policy toward North Korea has undergone a seismic shift in the wake of the 2017 U.S. presidential inauguration from strategic patience to strategic accountability. The world has also borne witness to a darker side of that policy shift, characterized by an escalating war of words between the United States and North Korea, or more specifically between its two leaders. Bluster-filled news headlines and Twitter feeds with a tenor reminiscent of Cold War-era War histrionics have become the preferred method of dialogue. Fire and fury, locked and loaded, and the public comparison of nuclear button sizes. While such attention-grabbing headlines do little to advance greater nuclear stability, either on the Korean peninsula or within the region, they do accomplish two important things. First, they point to a fundamental U.S. misunderstanding of the role nuclear weapons now play for the regime. Sans such understanding, U.S. policy toward the regime is likely to remain disjointed, addressing only outward manifestations of its behavior. Second, over the past few decades, U.S. policy toward North Korea has settled around a set of idées fixes that either has little basis in fact, or potentially runs counter to the self-interests of other nations. This essay expands on these two points in an effort to offer a new paradigm through which North Korea's nuclear weapons program can be considered, and the regime potentially engaged. Deconstructing policy fixes. In order to build a new paradigm, we must first identify and dispel the most prevalent truisms that have emerged in U.S. foreign policy attendant to North Korea. Truism number one. War on the peninsula may be unavoidable. This is more of a recent concern, given the heated rhetoric between the two leaders. The likelihood of war being intentionally waged on the Korean peninsula, however, remains unlikely, but not non-existent, for legal, security, and humanitarian reasons. Initiating an attack would run counter to the regime's primary objective of ensuring its own survival. An attack initiated by the U.S. under the Mutual Defense Treaty between the U.S. and South Korea would violate treaty terms. South Korean President Moon Jae-in's North Korea policy aligns more closely with the sunshine policy pursued by some past leaders rather than the antithetical hardline policies of others.
and a scenario under which the U.S. and South Korea initiated such an action would unleash a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. The Seoul capital area, home to about half the nation's population, or about 26 million people, is the primary target for thousands of North Korea's field artillery pieces. The carnage and destruction wrought under such a scenario would be incalculable. Truism number two. North Korea's nuclear weapons can reach the U.S. mainland. At this point, such assertions are unfounded. The regime's nuclear weapons program has undergone surprisingly rapid advances under Kim Jong-un's stewardship, but at present, threat of a North Korean missile reaching the U.S. mainland remains a hypothetical capability and regime propaganda. While the U.S. media widely reported at the end of November 2017 that the regime had achieved such a capability based largely on U.S. Secretary of Defense James Mattis's assessment that North Korea had the ability to hit everywhere in the world, it was only two weeks later that the secretary walked back his own statements, pointing out that North Korea has not yet shown to be a capable threat against us right now. Not in dispute, however, is that the regime continues to further its nuclear capabilities and at some point in the future will likely become an existential threat to the U.S. Truism number three. The U.S. will never accept a nuclear North Korea, says U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. The fact of the matter is, however, that North Korea is already a nuclear state. It is presently augmenting and refining its capability, but the regime long ago crossed the nuclear Rubicon. The real question is what level of perceived vulnerability is the U.S. prepared to accept? The regime considers nuclear weapons its lifeblood for survival and a hedge against more powerful nations for three important reasons. Comparatively speaking, they are less costly to maintain than an active military of over one million. They, and accompanying brinksmanship tactics, garner the world's attention, something all North Korean dynastic leaders have sought. And the threats of nuclear weapons development have proven effective as bargaining chips over the decades. Jush, the centrality of North Korean existence. To understand North Korean thinking, one must understand the concept of Jush and what it means to many North Koreans. Jush is often described as a form of self-reliance, which, while partially true, is also an unfortunate oversimplification.
Jush is the essence of North Korean existence, steeled in Cold War ideology, and is to most North Koreans what independence, liberty, and justice are to Americans, a cultural bedrock. The following is a definition that helps capture Jush's pervasiveness. An autonomous self-identity, which has an enabling independence of action, that in its ideal state renders North Korea insusceptible to, or at the very least mitigates, the undesirable external influences of larger powers, particularly the United States, and to a lesser degree the PRC. In toto. Jush is both a domestic tool for political control and the regime's chief foreign policy tool. Nuclear weapons are merely the implement of that policy. Despite its Cold War origins, Jush remains es- essential to better understanding the regime's mindset and is based on four fundamental determinants. Independence of action, pragmatism, flexibility, and equality. Independence of action. Historically, North Korean leaders have sought to maintain operational, ideological, and strategic distance from the influence of larger powers, in order to maintain the country's own freedom to act. While simultaneously relying on their support, Kim Il Sung, the country's first leader, relied on his larger communist benefactors, China and the former Soviet Union, for military and other types of aid, while keeping their brands of communism at arm's length. Kim worked to develop his own type of communism, unique to North Korea, Kim Il Sungism. This almost reflexive need to maintain independence of action, even in the face of staunch opposition, remains ensconced in regime thinking, manifested in its dogged pursuit of nuclear weapons. Despite confronting global condemnation, flexibility and pragmatism. These determinants are complementary, and by their nature transactional. During the Cold War, Kim Il Sung found it alternately expedient to align himself with either the former Soviet Union or China. Despite the deep ideological rift that existed between the two communist giants, the needs of North Korea were central to Kim, and he was prepared to engage either of the two communist rivals at varying times during the last half of the twentieth century. Similar behavior can be observed today in the regime's willingness to accept food aid from South Korea. Its peninsular rival, the United Nations World Food Program, 
for other donor nations on the one hand, while maintaining independence of action on the other, i.e. pursuing a nuclear weapons program unabatedly. Regime overtures to participate in the 2018 Winter Olympic Games alongside South Korea are similarly transactional. Both countries marched under one flag during the opening ceremonies and fielded a joint women's ice hockey team. The two countries have, however, also marched together during the 2000 and 2004 Olympic Games, but such overtures have accomplished little in the way of mitigating the trajectory of the regime's behavior toward nuclear weapons. Equality. At the heart of this determinant lies an effort to keep at bay the perceived deleterious impact of big power chauvinism. Historically, Kim Il-sung sought to minimize meddling from his two communist benefactors in North Korea's domestic affairs. Consequently, attaining equal footing vis-a-vis the former Soviet Union and China became of tantamount importance in order to strengthen his bargaining position with them. Equality has remained a fundamental pursuit among all three North Korean dynastic leaders. Kim Jong-il's battleground for equality was waged in large measure via the six party talks. And presently, Kim Jong-un pursues the same through a ramped-up nuclear program and the tit-for-tat dialogue with the Donald Trump administration. Another prevalent idée fixe related to North Korea is that its unpredictability makes it nearly impossible to understand. The regime is not unknowable. Dealing with it, however, provides vast opportunity for misunderstanding and miscalculation. But a centuries-old tenant of foreign policy and attendant negotiations is to first know your adversary. Historical examples abound on both sides of this immutable truth. Those who abided by its wisdom and were successful and those who did not. In the case of North Korea, two additional immutable truths have emerged. Another war on the Korean peninsula is not an option, and the current U.S. policy of nuclear non-acceptability is outdated. The issue that remains to be resolved is how best to re-engage the regime in order to mitigate the effects of its nuclear program. What Women Should Know About Communism by He Jun. The intellectual life of early 20th century China was a rich mixture of Confucian scholarship along with a variety of Western ideas, social Darwinism, feminism, anarchism, anti-Manchu revolutionary thought, and so on. 
He Zhen was the wife of the anti-Manchu anarchist leader Liu Shipei. The essay below appeared in the journal Natural Justice, which He Zhen and Liu Shipei published while in exile in Japan. What is the most important thing in the world? Eating is the most important. You who are women, what is it that makes one suffer mistreatment? It is relying on others in order to eat. Let us look at the most pitiable of women. There are three sorts. There are those who end up as servants. If their master wants to hit them, he hits them. If he wants to curse them, he curses them. They do not dare to offer the slightest resistance, but slave for him from morning to night. They get up at four o'clock and do not go to bed until midnight. What is the reason for this? It is simply that the master has money, and you depend on him in order to eat. There are also women workers. Everywhere in Shanghai, there are silk factories, cotton mills, weaving factories, and laundries. I don't know how many women have been hired by these places. They too work all day into the evening, and they too lack even a moment for themselves. They work blindly, unable to stand straight. What is the reason for this? It is simply that the factory owner has money, and you depend on him in order to eat. There are also prostitutes. Every day they are beaten by their pimps. Whatever the customer is like, they must service him if he wants to be serviced, or they must gamble with him if he wants to gamble. People despise them. The wild chickens of Shanghai have to stand on the streets waiting for customers at midnight, in the wind and snow. What is the reason for this? It is simply that your family is poor. You must sell yourself in this way in order to eat. Aside from these three kinds of people, there are also concubines. They must swallow their resentment, no matter how the first wife mistreats them. This too is because they depend on men in order to eat. As for widows, a very few who are from rich families will die to protect their virtue. Very many who are from poor families will die, because they have no children to support them and cannot remarry. This too is because they have nothing to eat. But even if they survive, their lives are still bitter, and so they actively seek to die. As for women who farm the fields or raise silkworms, their lives are also very bitter. The things they have to do are just enough to let them scrape by. Moreover, women who marry are beaten and cursed by their husbands, or else ignored, and they dare not make trouble. This is not because they want to gaze upon their husband's face, but because they want to gaze upon a bowl of rice. Thus, those of us who are women suffer untold bitterness. And untold wrongs in order to get hold of this rice bowl. My fellow women, do not hate men. Hate that you do not have food to eat. Why don't you have any food? 
It is because you don't have any money to buy food. Why don't you have any money? It is because the rich have stolen our property. They have forced the majority of people into poverty and starvation. Look at the wives and daughters in the government offices and mansions. They live extravagantly with no worries about having enough to eat. Why are you worried every day about starving to death? The poor are people just as the rich are. Think about it for yourselves. This ought to produce some disquieting feelings. There is now a kind of person who says that if women only had a profession, they would not fear starvation. Middle class families, for example, are sending their daughters to school, either to study a general course or to learn a little of handicrafts. Then, if they get married, they can become teachers. They won't need to rely on men in order to survive. Likewise, families that are very poor are sending their daughters and daughters in law to work in factories. As long as they stay there day after day, they will have a way of making a living. They won't have to become maids or prostitutes. This point of view has some truth in it. However, as I see it, Schools too are owned and operated by certain people, and if you teach in a school, then you are depending on those people in order to eat. Factories too are built by investors, and if you work in a factory, you are depending on its owners in order to eat. As long as you depend on others, you cannot be free. This is not much different from those who depended on others. In previous ages, and thus were subject to oppression. How could they be called independent? Moreover, when you depend on a school or a factory for your living, won't you end up jobless if they close down, or if your boss decides he has too many workers, or if no one wants your skills? Therefore, in the final analysis, depending on others is dangerous. And not at all a good idea. I have a good idea that will exempt you from relying on others while still finding food naturally. How? By practicing communism. Think of all the things in the world. They were either produced by nature or by individual labor. Why can rich people buy them but poor people cannot? It is because the world trades with money. It is because people seize the things they have bought with money for their exclusive use. If every single woman understands that nothing is more evil than money, and they all unite together to cooperate with men to utterly overthrow the rich and powerful, and then abolish money, then absolutely nothing will be allowed for individuals to own privately. Everything from food to clothes to tools will be put in a place where people, men and women alike, as long as they perform a little labor, can take however much of whatever they want, just like taking water from the ocean. This is called communism. At this time, not only will be we be free of depending on others for food to eat, but also the food will be all good to eat. It will be possible to have good things to wear, 
good things to use, and good things to play with. Think about it. Will this be a better future or not? I'm not lying to you. If we only unite together, with this method, we can naturally have a good future. There is no doubt about it. As we say colloquially, the good times are coming. This is what I have to say today. Essentials of the New Life Movement by Chiang Kai-shek Introduction In 1934, the nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek called for China to carry out a new life movement. At the time, Chiang was leader of the Republic of China, with his government in Nanjing. Chiang's government, seriously underfunded, had only nominal control over vast areas of the country, which were actually run by warlords who had allied with Chiang and acknowledged the authority of his ROC government in theory while retaining substantial power backed by their own armies in practice. Chiang's government was notoriously corrupt and not averse to cooperating with organized crime on projects such as opium suppression, i.e. monopoly, kidnapping, and assassination of political enemies. Japan had taken over northeastern China, or Manchuria, in 1932-1933 and renamed it Manchukuo. Within China, intellectuals had debated and attacked traditional Chinese values in the New Culture or May 4th movement, and the Communist Party, although driven underground in the cities, was active in the countryside. It was in this context that Chiang Kai-shek delivered this speech in September 1934 in the city of Nanchang, thus inaugurating the New Life Movement. Why is a new life needed? The general psychology of our people today can be described as spiritless. What manifests itself in behavior is this. Lack of discrimination between good and evil, between what is public and what is private, and between what is primary and what is secondary. Because there is no discrimination between good and evil, Right and wrong are confused. Because there is no discrimination between public and private, improper taking and giving of public funds occur. And because there is no distinction between primary and secondary, first and last are not placed in the proper order. As a result, officials tend to be dishonest and avaricious. The masses are undisciplined and calloused, Youth becomes degraded and intemperate. Adults are corrupt and ignorant. The rich become extravagant and luxurious, and the poor become mean and disorderly. Naturally, it has resulted in disorganization of the social order and national life, and we're in no position either to prevent or to remedy natural calamities, disasters caused from within, or invasions from without. The individual, society, and the whole country are now suffering. In order to develop the life of our nation, protect the existence of our society, 
and improve the livelihood of our people. It is absolutely necessary to wipe out these unwholesome conditions and to start to lead a new and rational life. The content of the new life movement. Principles. The new life movement aims at the promotion of a regular life guided by the four virtues, namely Li, ritual decorum, Yi, rightness or duty, Lian, integrity or honesty, and Qi, sense of shame. Those virtues must be applied to ordinary life in the matter of food, clothing, shelter, and action. The four virtues are the essential principles for the promotion of morality. They form the major rules for dealing with men and human affairs, for cultivating oneself, and for adjustment to one's surroundings. Whoever violates these rules is bound to fail, and a nation that neglects them will not survive. There are two kinds of skeptics. First, some hold that the four virtues are merely rules of good conduct. No matter how good they may be, they are not sufficient to save a nation whose knowledge and technique are inferior to others. Those who hold this view do not seem to understand the distinction between matters of primary and secondary importance. People need knowledge and technique because they want to do good. Otherwise, knowledge and technique can only be instruments of dishonorable deeds. Li, Yi, Lian, and Qi are the principal rules alike for the community, the group, or the entire nation. Those who do not observe these rules will probably utilize their knowledge and ability to the detriment of society and ultimate to their own disadvantage. Therefore, these virtues are not only can save the nation, but can also rebuild the nation. Second, there is another group of people who argue that these virtues are merely formal refinements that are useless in dealing with hunger and cold. Yet, when these virtues prevail, even if food and clothing are insufficient, they can be produced by human labor, or if the granary is empty, it can be flooded through human effort. On the other hand, when these virtues are not observed, if food and clothing are insufficient, they will not be made sufficient by fighting and robbing, or if the granary is empty, will not be filled by stealing and begging. The four virtues, which rectify the misconduct of men, are the proper methods of achieving abundance. Without them, there will be fighting, robbing, stealing, and begging among men. The meaning of Li, Yi, Lian, and Qi. Although Li, Yi, Lian, and Qi have always been regarded as the foundations of the nation, yet the changing times and circumstances may require that these principles be given a new interpretation. As applied to our life today, they may be interpreted as follows. Li means regulated attitude. Yi means right conduct. Lian means clear discrimination. Qi means real self-consciousness. The word li, decorum, means li, principle, 
It becomes natural law when applied to nature. It becomes a rule when applied to social affairs, and it signifies discipline when used in reference to national affairs. A man's conduct is considered regular if it conforms with the above law, rule, and discipline. When one conducts oneself in accordance with a regular manner, one is said to have the regulated attitude. The word ye means proper. Any conduct that is in accordance with li, i.e. natural law, social rule, and national discipline, is considered proper. To act improperly, or to refrain from acting when one knows it is proper to act, cannot be called yi. The word lian means clear. It denotes distinction between right and wrong. What agrees with li and yi is right, and what does not agree is wrong. To take what we recognize as right, and to forego what we recognize as wrong, constitute clear discrimination. The word shi means consciousness. When one is conscious of the fact that his own actions are not in accordance with li, yi, lian, and shi, one feels ashamed. From the above explanations, it is clear that shi governs the motive of action, that lian gives the guidance for it, that yi relates to the carrying out of an action, and that li regulates its outward form. The four are interrelated. They are dependent upon each other in the perfecting of virtue. Conclusion In short, the main object of the new life movement is to substitute a rational life for the irrational. And to achieve this, we must observe Li, Yi, Lian, and Qi in our daily life. By the observance of these virtues, it is hoped that rudeness and vulgarity will be got rid of, and that the life of our people will conform to the standard of art. By art, we are not referring to the special enjoyment of the gentry. We mean the cultural standard of all the people, irrespective of sex, age, wealth, and class. We mean the cultural standard of all the people. It is the boundary line between civilized life and barbarism. It is the only way by which one can achieve the purpose of man, for only by artistically controlling oneself and dealing with others can one fulfill the duty of mutual assistance. A lack of artistic training is the cause of suspicion, jealousy, hatred, and strife that are prevalent in our society today. To investigate things so as to extend our knowledge, to distinguish between the fundamental and the secondary, to seek the invention of instruments, to excel in our techniques. These are the essentials of an artistic life, the practice of which will enable us to wipe out the defects of vulgarity, confusion, crudity, and baseness. By the observance of these virtues, it is hoped that beggary and robbery will be eliminated and that the life of our people will be productive. The poverty of China is primarily caused by the fact that there are too many consumers and too few producers. Those who consume without producing usually live as parasites or as robbers. 
They behave thus because they are ignorant of the four virtues. To remedy thus, we must make them produce more and spend less. They must understand that luxury is improper and that living as a parasite is a shame. By the observance of these virtues, it is hoped that social disorder and individual weakness will be remedied and that people will become more military-minded. If a country cannot defend itself, it has every chance of losing its existence. Therefore, our people must have military training. As a preliminary, we must acquire the habits of orderliness, cleanliness, simplicity, frugality, promptness, and exactness. We must preserve order, emphasize organization, responsibility, and discipline, and be ready to die for the country at any moment. To get rich is glorious. The reforms of Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin. Visitors going through Mao's mausoleum at Tiananmen Square in Beijing exit through a gift shop to be greeted by hawkers outside competing to sell an array of cheap Mao memorabilia, from cigarette lighters to badges to clocks and watches. Such a flagrant display of capitalism so close to Mao's body is high irony. It is clear that Mao's brand of socialism differed greatly from that of his successors. When Deng Xiaoping emerged as China's leader in the late 1970s, he set out to remake the face of China by embarking on a bold program of economic liberalization, specifically the introduction of widespread capitalism. By the time of Deng's death in 1997, someone living in Mao's China would not have recognized the economic and social face of China. Between 1979 and 1984, the party state abolished the centerpiece of Mao's China, the rural commune. By 1984, 98% of Chinese farm households were participating instead in what was known as the responsibility system. Though farmers did not own their land, they leased it from the collective, it could be bought, sold, and inherited. After the farmer paid the required tax to the state, he could keep the profits made on the sale of his crops, a far cry from the commune system in which farmers could not even have garden plots and lived only on the wages paid by the commune. Many farmers, in order to make as much money as possible, shifted to cash crops that would bring more on the market. The results were astounding. Between 1978 and 1984, the per capita income in the countryside almost doubled. People purchased more consumer goods, built new homes, and ate a better diet, all of which indicates a higher living standard. Part of the rural wealth came from township and village enterprises that produced, for example, fertilizers, pesticides, and machine tools. In urban areas, the government introduced the market model in 1979. Here the market, not government planning, regulated the production and distribution of goods. Individual businesses could operate fairly autonomously, and they could make a profit. 
In larger enterprises, factory managers could hire and fire their employees, a major shift in policy, because under the previous system, what was known as the Iron Rice Bowl, or lifetime job security, meant workers could never be fired. The government set in place an industrial responsibility system that allowed an enterprise to keep half its profits after paying the state the other half in taxes. Price controls were gradually lifted. As in the countryside, this more liberal policy brought growing wealth. Between 1979 and 1989, the real wages of urban workers more than doubled. During the late 1980s and following the political turmoil in the spring of 1989, there was a constant battle between those who wanted to continue economic liberalization and those who wanted a slower approach or even an end to liberalization. Dunn, however, gave his firm blessing to liberalizing in early 1992. Leading the way were so-called special economic zones along China's southeast coast, where incentives such as low tax rates encouraged foreign investment. One opponent of reform described these zones as savagely capitalist. The effect of these thriving zones spilled out beyond the zones themselves, transforming surrounding areas and making coastal China, from Hong Kong to Shanghai, increasingly modern. Jiang Zemin, chair of the party, head of state, and head of military commission in the 1990s, continued Deng's bold economic moves. The boldest was to begin to turn state enterprises into private ones. The huge majority of these enterprises, which produced up to 40% of China's total industrial product, lost money year after year and had to be subsidized by the government. The boldness of the effort to move toward privatization came in part from the fact that once enterprises went private, they would be driven by the bottom line, profits. Without the iron rice bowl, many workers were in danger of losing their jobs. Another impact of privatization was ideological. In socialism, the state owns and controls industry. Once companies became private and worked for the individual company profits, there was no way the new Chinese system could remain socialist. The official party state line became socialism with Chinese characteristics, clearly a euphemism for capitalism. In national terms, China enjoyed a spectacular economic boom in the 1990s. Indeed, China's economy quadrupled between 1980 and 2000. For Chinese families and individuals, this explosion of wealth had both positive and negative effects. On the positive side, it allowed the Chinese masses to go on a consumer spending spree, purchasing color televisions, washing machines, air conditioners, refrigerators, stereo tape recorders, and sewing machines. With money to spend on such items, individual choice increased. But all the results were not so happy. Under the old system, workers did not have to pay for medical care or put money into pension funds. Beginning in the 1990s, they had to do both, in addition to contributing co-payments for insurance. Under the traditional system, workers were assigned positions and then could not be fired. 
Under the reforms, workers could choose their own jobs if jobs were even available and could be fired. In addition, there was a growing disparity of income between cities and countryside within cities between coastal China and the interior and between workers at state enterprises and private ones. This gave rise to considerable jealousy called the red-eye disease and social grumbling. There were many unhappy results of the reforms for the nation as well. The reforms changed some regions remarkably while doing very little for others. Coastal areas prospered while interior regions languished. Rural areas lagged far behind cities. Many people left rural areas for presumably better jobs and lives in cities. But once they got there, most found no permanent or satisfying jobs. Without work or home, they took to living in train stations, under overpasses, or on the streets. They were tagged the floating population and were a potential threat to social order. An unfortunate offshoot of reform was corruption. The goal in life was to get rich, and many came to believe that anything one did to reach that goal was legitimate. Therefore, on every level of government and in all areas of private society, anything went. Embezzlement, bribery, extortion, smuggling, fraud, deception, kickbacks, nepotism, stock manipulation, and illegal business transactions, among others. Criticisms grew that life under the reforms had transformed China into a money-mad culture without any redeeming moral values. Some critics charged that China had lost its soul. Indeed, at the beginning of the 21st century, while thriving economically in many areas, China appeared to be drifting morally and culturally. Reforms of Deng Xiaoping In his capacity as Special Assistant to Party General Secretary Hu Yaobang, Ren Ming helped direct agricultural reform in the early 1980s. In this memoir published in 1992, he notes some of the consequences of the reform. The rapid, the rapid spread of the family responsibility system in the countryside and disappearance of the people's communes emancipated the peasants and the forces of agricultural production. The outlook of the rural population was fundamentally changed. As a first consequence, harvests were bountiful four years in a row, from 1980 to 1984. In five years' time, the total output of grain increased by 100 billion kilograms and cotton production by 3.8 million tons. The old prog- problem of the nourishment and basic clothing of the Chinese peasants was at last resolved. After 1984, stagnant agricultural production had a lot to do with the stagnation in the guiding ideology of reform. The second consequence of the rural reform was that the market economy made great strides in the countryside. The most profound economic change induced by reform was that it put an end to the combination of the self-reliant and semi-self-reliant natural economy that has dominated China for thousands of years, and that was joined after 1953 to a barter economy under the protection of the state. But the Chinese economy was nevertheless entering a new era. 
despite the many frustrations of the 10-year reform, the development of the rural commercial economy is irreversible. More than 65% of the rural economy was converted into a market economy. More than 100 million people formed rural enterprises that produced 1 trillion yuan worth of merchandise. The production value of Chinese rural industries surpassed that of rural agricultural production, and so brought an end to the old view of Chinese villages as places where 800 million shift for themselves to feed themselves. Not only do they now shift for themselves to feed themselves, but they throw themselves into animal husbandry, forestry, and fishing. They are entrepreneurs in industry, commerce, and transportation, or other services sectors. This great upheaval has made altogether impossible a return to the old economy based on people's communes and the state grain monopoly. Finally, the third consequence of rural reform, the farmers constitute the greatest force for reform in China and a powerful new independent force. Land reform in the early 1950s freed them from the first time as a class from the landlords in theory, they were the masters of the country, but in reality, they lived as prisoners of the people's communes and state planning. This time, now that they are emancipated, they truly want to influence the nation's destiny. Their power is first of all manifested in the economic realm. Rural merchandise has flooded the Chinese market, and some has even penetrated the global economy. The independent economic status of China's farmers has truly increased. At the same time, the emancipation of agricultural production forces has led more and more free rural people to quit the land to enter industry, commerce, and the service areas, or to install themselves in cities, where they have become the motivating factor behind urban reforms. That was the big picture of the Great Reform carried out from 1979 to 1980. The countryside had overwhelmed the cities. The great strides of the market economy in the countryside and the motivating role that the farmers play characterize the Chinese reform. There reside its advantages compared to Gorbachev's, Gorbachev's reforms in the USSR. There also reside its weaknesses the market has no coherence, and its mechanisms are incomplete. The coexistence of two systems of price setting by the market and by the state allows an abuse of power and a sabotage of market mechanisms. Cultural and technical backwardness or rural enterprise has created a huge waste of natural resources and labor as well as environmental pollution. The reform launched in the countryside must be relieved. It needs the support of workers and intellectuals from the cities to help the farmers transform this rural market economy, backward and partially developed, into an advanced and fully developed one. But this second phase has not been realized, and that is the source of the tragic fate of reform in China. After the late 1980s, when the rate of inflation suggested that the economy might be in trouble and the severe political turmoil in 1989, 
suggested that openness brought by the reforms might be destabilizing. The future of reforms seemed much in question. On a trip in early 1992 to the special economic zones, especially Shenzhen, very near to Hong Kong, 88-year-old Deng Xiaoping encouraged more rapid expansion of the reforms rather than cutting back as the conservatives would have wished. His remarks to local officials, in effect, set full steam ahead for China to continue to liberalize its economic policy. His statement takes on the issue of whether the reforms were capitalist or socialist, but he dances around the issue without much of a satisfying conclusion. We should be bolder in carrying out reforms and opening up to the outside world and in making experimentations. We should not act like a woman with bound feet. For what we regard as correct, just try it and go ahead daringly. Shenzhen's experience means daring to break through. One cannot just blaze a trail, a new trail, and accomplish a new undertaking without a spirit of daring to break through. The spirit of taking a risk, and without some spirit and vigor. Who can say that everything is 100% sure of success with no risk at all? One should not consider one always in the right. There is no such thing. I never think so myself. Leaders should sum up experiences every year. They should persist in what is right and promptly correct what is not. New problems should be immediately solved whenever they emerge. It may take 30 more years for us to institute a whole set of more mature and complete systems in various fields. Under this set of systems, our principles and policies will fall more into a pattern. Now we are better experienced with each passing day in building socialism of the Chinese type. Failing to take bigger steps and break through in carrying our reforms and opening to the outside world is essentially for fear that there may be too much capitalism or that the capitalist road is followed. The question of whether a move is socialist or capitalist is crucial. The criterion for judging this can only be whether or not a move is conducive to developing the productive forces in socialist society increasing the comprehensive strength of this country, and improving the people's living standards. There were differing views on setting up special economic zones from the beginning, and people feared that they might involve the practice of capitalism. The achievements made in the construction of Shenzhen provide clear answers to people with various misgivings. The special economic zones are socialist, not capitalist. Judging from Shenzhen's situation, public ownership is the main system of ownership, and the investment by foreign businessmen accounts for only one-fourth of the total amount of investment in the zone. As for foreign investment, we can also benefit from it through taxation and by providing labor services. Whether the emphasis is on planning or market is not the essential distinction between socialism and capitalism. A planned economy is not socialism. There's planning under capitalism, too. <clears throat> and a market economy is not capitalism. There's market regulation under socialism, too. 
Planning and market are both economic means. The essence of socialism is to liberate and develop productive forces, to eliminate exploitation and polarization, and to finally realize common prosperity. In short, in order to win a relative edge of socialism over capitalism, we must boldly absorb and draw on all fruits of civilization created by the society of mankind, as well as all advanced management and operational methods and modes reflecting the law on modern socialized production in various countries of the world today, including developed capitalist countries. On eliminating dogmatism and formalism and establishing Chukje in Ideological Work by Kim Il-sung. After the end of colonial rule in 1945, political divisions within Korea interacted with the escalating Cold War tension between the United States and USSR, each of which had occupied and fostered a government in one half of the peninsula to create the conditions that led to the Korean War. In the aftermath of that war, with its non-decisive result, the separation of North and South Korean states, officially the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and the Republic of Korea respectively, has been maintained to this day, continually reproduced until fairly recently by an atmosphere of mutual hostility. The Kim Il-sung government of the North considered itself the heir of the communist anti-imperialist struggle against Japanese forces in Manchuria. As time passed, other ideological foci came to supplement or even supplant Marxism-Leninism as the central official state ideology. In this 1955 speech, entitled On Eliminating Dogmatism and Formalism and Establishing Juche in Ideological Work, Kim explained what he meant by Juche, subjectivity in literal translation and why it was important for North Korea. It is important in our work to grasp revolutionary truth, Marxist-Leninist truth, and apply it correctly to our actual conditions. There should be no set rule that we must follow to the Soviet, that we must follow the Soviet pattern. Some advocate the Soviet way and others the Chinese but it is not high time to work out our own. Today I want to address a few remarks to you on the shortcomings in our party's ideological work and how to eliminate them in the future. As you learned at yesterday's session, there have been serious ideological errors on the literary front. It is obvious then that our propaganda work also cannot have been faultless. It is to be regretted that it suffers in many respects from dogmatism and formalism. The principal shortcomings in ideological work are the failure to delve deeply into all matters and the lack of Juche. It may not be correct to say Juche is lacking, but in fact it has not yet been firmly established. This is a serious matter. We must thoroughly rectify this shortcoming. Unless this problem is solved, we cannot hope for good results in ideological work. Why does our ideological work suffer from dogmatism and formalism? Why do our propaganda and agitation workers 
only embellish the facade and fail to go deeply into matters? And why do they merely copy and memorize things foreign instead of working creatively? This offers us food for serious reflection. What is Juche in our party's ideological work? What are we doing? We are not engaged in any other country's revolution, but solely in the Korean Revolution. Thus, the Korean Revolution determines the essence of Juche in the ideological work of our party. Therefore, all ideological work must be subordinated to the interests of the Korean Revolution. When we study the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the history of the Chinese Revolution, or the universal truth of Marxism-Leninism, it is entirely for the purpose of correctly carrying out our own revolution. By saying that the ideological work of our party is lacking in Juche, I do not mean, of course, that we have not made the revolution and that our revolutionary work was undertaken by outsiders. Nonetheless, Juche has not been firmly established in ideological work, and this leads to dogmatic and formalistic errors and does much harm to our revolutionary cause. To make revolution in Korea, we must know Korean history and geography as well as the customs of the Korean people. Only then is it possible to educate our people in a way that suits them and to inspire in them an ardent love for their native place and their motherland. It is of paramount importance to study and widely publicize among the working people the history of our country and of our people's struggle. Only when we educate our people in the history of their own struggle and its traditions can we stimulate their national pride and rouse the broad masses to revolutionary struggle. Yet, many of our functionaries are ignorant of our country's history and so do not strive to discover, inherit, and carry forward our fine traditions. Unless this is corrected, it will lead, in the long run, to the negation of Korean history. Once I visited a People's Army rest home where there was a picture of the Siberian steppe on the wall. Russians probably like that landscape, but we Korean people like the beautiful scenery of our own country. There are beautiful mountains such as Kumgang and Myoyang in our country. There are clear streams, the beautiful blue sea with its rolling waves, and fields with their ripening crops. If we are to inspire in our <clears throat> people's army men a love for their native place and their country, we must display more pictures of our own landscapes. I noticed in a primary school that all the portraits on the walls were of foreigners, such as Mayakovsky and Pushkin, but there were none of Koreans. If children are educated in this way, how can they be expected to have national pride? We should study our own things in earnest and get to know them well. It is important in our work to grasp revolutionary truth, Marxist-Leninist truth, and apply it correctly to our actual conditions. There should be no set rule that we must follow the Soviet pattern. Some advocate the Soviet way and others the Chinese, but it is not high time to work out our own. The point is that we should not mechanically copy the forms and methods of the Soviet Union, 
but should learn from its experience and struggle and from the truth of Marxism-Leninism. So, while learning from the experience of the Soviet Union, we must put stress not on the form, but on the essence of its experience. Merely copying the forms used by others instead of learning the truth of Marxism-Leninism does us no good, only harm. In both revolutionary struggle and construction, we should apply, we should firmly adhere to Marxist-Leninist principles, applying them in a creative way to suit the specific conditions and national characteristics of our country. If we mechanically apply foreign experience, disregarding the history of our country and the traditions of our people and without taking account of our own realities and our people's political level, we will commit dogmatic errors and do much harm to the revolutionary cause. Selections from To Build a Nation by Pak Chong-hee The Singing-ri government in South Korea, which had come to power in the late 1940s, was overthrown by a spring 1960 revolution, led largely by students who protested its corruption. Then, in May 1961, there was a second military coup which brought to power General Pak Chung-hui's, who ruled until his death by assassination in 1979. Park's years in power were marked by both rapid economic development and authoritarian government under which civil rights were repeatedly suspended. In this passage from his 1971 book, To Build a Nation, Park reflected back on the early 1960s. When I took over power as the leader of the revolutionary group on 16th of May 1961, I felt, honestly speaking, as if I had been given a pilfered household or a bankrupt firm to manage. But I had to rise above this pessimism to rehabilitate the household. I had to break, once and for all, the vicious cycle of poverty and economic stagnation. Before May 16th, the Korean economy was in disorder. Accumulated political blunders and misguided economic policy had utterly disarranged it. The post-war rehabilitation of the nation was at a near standstill, while the amount of grant-type foreign aid was lessening. Economic stagnation aggravated poverty and unemployment. Farmers' debts rose sharply. With growth at a standstill at the turn of the 1960s, Korea found itself one of the lowest-income countries in the world. The industrial structure was not solid. Due to a huge gravitation toward them of a huge amount of foreign aid, the secondary and tertiary industries seemed excessively swollen in comparison with primary industry. The in institutional and moral aspects of the society were no better. People fatalistically took poverty and reliance on foreign aid as unavoidable facts of life. Businessmen and industrialists failed to fulfill their important role in economic development. Many corrupt government officials and parvenus worked together to amass illegal fortunes. The market, suffering from its small scale and lack of vigorous competition, did not function normally. 
The underdeveloped agricultural system was unable to meet the demand for food. We were forced to rely on the farm products of advanced countries. The whole economy was afflicted by inexperience, inefficiency, and wasteful management. When I took over power as the leader of the revolutionary group on 16 May 1961, I felt, honestly speaking, as if I had been given a pilfered household or a bankrupt firm to manage. Around me, I could find little hope or encouragement. The outlook was bleak. But I had to rise above this pessimism to rehabilitate the household. I had to break, once and for all, the vicious cycle of poverty and economic stagnation. Only by curing the abnormal economic structure could we lay the foundation for decent living standards. But I soon came to realize the difficulty of simultaneously achieving our goals of social stability and economic development and the goal of efficient government. I was also aware of the fact that economic development in the capitalist manner requires not only an immense investment of money and materials, but also a stable political situation and competent administrators. To achieve this stability, the military revolutionary government temporarily suspended political activities of students, the press, labor unions, and other social and political organizations which had caused political crises and social unrest during the rule of the Democratic Party regime. We also made it clear that civilian government would be restored in 1963. Meanwhile, we organized a planning committee of college professors and experts with specialized knowledge in many fields. By mobilizing the maximum available expertise, government administration and policy making, we intended to hold in cheek the arbitrariness and rashness of the military officers. The establishment of this committee served as a turning point. Korean professors began to show positive interest in the realities of the country and to present policy recommendations on the basis of scientific analyses of the country's situation. Even though not all of these recommendations could be justified in terms of efficiency and rationality, their advice was of great help to the revolutionary government. Thus, for the Confucian tradition of Yi Korea, in which scholars played a positive part in government affairs, seems to have been revived. The key to improving a backward economy is the way one uses human resources, for economic development is a human undertaking impossible without combining the people's potential into a dynamic driving force. This task requires not only strong national willpower, but also the ability to translate willpower into achievement. Blueprints must be drawn and explained. If people have a sympathetic understanding of a task, they will voluntarily participate in it. In 1961, the revolutionary government announced the first five-year economic development plan to start in 1962, the first such overall development program ever prepared for Korea. To prepare it, the revolutionary government mobilized all the wisdom and knowledge available and set clear goals, 
The primary goal being to establish a self-supporting industrial economy. <clears throat> the principle of free enterprise and respect for the creativity of private industry was adopted, for in this way we believed that the private sector would be encouraged to act voluntarily. Under the plan, however, the economy was not entirely free, since development of basic industries was directed by the government. Taking into consideration the structural characteristics of the Korean economy, the five-year plan gave priority to the following things. Development of energy industries, such as coal production and electric power. Expansion of agricultural production, aimed at increasing farm income and correcting the structural imbalance of the national economy. Development of basic industries and the economic infrastructure. Maximum utilization of idle resources, increased employment, conservation, and utilization of land. Improvement of the balance of payments through export promotion. Promotion of science and technology.